What was it like sending your food allergic child to school for the first time? Sending her to school for the first time was terrifying. She was two and a half years old and she was starting preschool. She had been diagnosed a year before, dropping her off for her first day of preschool, going to my car and just sobbing. You may be what you eat, but healthy has a different definition for everybody. From Food Equality Initiative, I'm Sophia Gillespie, and welcome to the Free From Podcast. You may recognize that voice. That's Meg Noe. We spoke to her on the last episode about oral immunotherapy. Today, we'll be talking about sending food allergic kids to school. What can parents, students, and school administrators do to make sure everyone stays safe? Meg will tell us a little bit more about her experience, and then we'll hear some important information from a school nurse. Stay tuned. For any parent, dropping their kid off to school for the first time is a nerve-wracking experience because, you know, you're letting them out of the nest a little bit. But having something like a life-threatening allergy would only raise the stakes in that game and, and trusting really your child's health, care, and wellness to someone else. Yeah. Well, and especially when they're little and can't fully advocate for themselves. I mean, she could verbalize, I have a nut allergy, but she couldn't say, can I please check that label? What does the contained statement say? You know, she couldn't verbalize it to that point like she can now where she can ask her teacher like, hey, can I read the label? Because I'd like to double check it. And so I really had to rely on her teachers and um, the head of the school. Let's now bring in our school nurse expert. My name is Cheryl Simmons. I'm the school nurse coordinator for KIPP St. Louis Public Schools. And I've been doing uh, school nurse leadership since uh, 2015. Prior to that, I, I worked as a school nurse. And prior to that, I worked in hospitals and other healthcare systems. Awesome. So what inspired you to switch to the school setting? Well, I've always liked working with children and I had a, an affinity for public health. And I thought moving uh, into school nursing as I had more advanced in my career was going to kind of lead me toward retirement, but actually <laughs> it's kind of re-stimulated uh, more working um, with the public in public health and kind of got me more more things to do instead of less. <laughs> so it was a lot different than I planned. Wow. But I'm glad because I enjoy it. And uh, it's a new, uh, a new fight that I, I'm fighting now. That's awesome. We invited you specifically on the Free From podcast to talk about what families and, you know, students can do when they have food allergies or other dietary restrictions, like what they can do in the schools to help get accommodations and make sure that they're safe. And so what are some things that you would recommend for parents and students to do before their first day of school in order to, you know, make sure that that everyone's safe? The first thing that they can do is to see their primary care physician, clinic, uh, healthcare uh, facility in their area and verify what allergens the student has. Uh, if they have a primary care pediatrician, generally they do allergy tests or allergen tests. Sometimes it's hard to figure out if it's just hay fever, seasonal allergies, whether it's a food, specific food allergy or not. You know, sometimes they can find out very young. Right now, uh, they're introducing peanuts and peanut butter and other things like that to younger children to see if it will help kind of help stem that allergy from developing. But once a parent finds out or suspects that their child may have an allergy, specifically a food allergy, they need to see their healthcare 
professional or someone so that they can have documentation to bring into the school nurse. A lot of the uh, schools will accommodate special diets. Um, that is, if the student is lactose or intolerant or has a milk or dairy allergy, they can provide soy milk or other milks, but they need some documentation, usually from a physician and also information from the parent about what happens to that kiddo if they are exposed to that allergy. Okay. So it sounds like in order for any accommodations to be made, like the first step is that you need to have documentation of an allergy or an intolerance. What is the next step? There's a document I'm going to show you. Let me see if I can. Okay. Uh, Generally, when a student goes to the doctor, they get a form. I'm going to show you. Similar to this form, it's from Food Allergy Research and Education site, and you can actually go online and find that, and they have so much information. So this uh, Food Allergy and Anaphylaxis Emergency Care Plan actually is what you can find on that website and print it out. Um, I'm going to show you that. And a lot of times the physician will fill this out and send it in to the, the parent to take to the nurse. And it includes the allergen, if they're having any medications, if they have an EpiPen, in case there's an anaphylactic reaction, maybe they have a severe peanut allergy or some other allergy that if they're exposed around, even sometimes smell a particular uh, allergen, it can have devastating effects. So this would be to give to the school nurse to know what to do in case that student is exposed to that allergy. And this is the uh, EpiPen uh, information, basically tells you about the medication and how to use it. So if there's an issue that will come up at school, the nurse will have a copy and she will make sure that the school teacher, classroom teacher and the cafeteria staff are also aware of that student's allergy. Excellent. So what are some accommodations that, you know, parents and students could possibly, I don't know if expect is the right word, but at least like request at different schools? The number one accommodation would be a dietary adjustment. I do have a, a personal story. My granddaughter is uh, has a gluten allergy. She's also allergic to eggs. She's allergic to dairy. And so we had to make accommodations with the school nurse at her school and with the classroom teacher to know that she cannot have certain things so that she would have to have a gluten or wheat-free um, diet from the cafeteria. Also, um, no dairy products. They're usually assigned outside the classroom that says this is an allergy-free classroom, peanut-free zone, that sort of thing. So those are all accommodations that the school would make. They, some schools have peanut-free tables where they in the cafeteria where students with certain allergies will sit at a different table so that they're not exposed. Um, to that allergen. So there are other, those are some of the things that can be done. Also, an EpiPen is located in the nurse's office for that student and easily accessible in case that child is exposed to that allergen. So those are some of the accommodations that schools can make. Excellent. So I've also heard about, you know, things like the 504 plan. And I was just wondering if you could break that down for us, what it means, who can get it, um, and how it can help the student just navigate school? Actually, there are several plans that two or three that the nurses have. There's an individualized health plan, which is uh, not as maybe complicated as a 504 plan, which is what the nurse has in case um, the student is exposed to an allergen. They would come to the nurse's office. They would receive 
medicine like Benadryl or either an EpiPen, depending on the severity of the allergic reaction. And uh, the parent will be called, the physician will be called, parent, no parent may pick up the student. Then that will be in the student's file, usually in the main office or in the nurse's office to say, this is what happens if this child is exposed to an allergen. A uh, emergency action plan would be a plan that would be given to the classroom teacher and then school cafeteria staff. So if a student may accidentally be exposed to an allergen, they would know what steps to take in order to make sure that that student was safe and cared for and, and seen by a nurse as soon as possible. A 504 plan basically incorporates those plans, but it's something that is uh, renewed annually. So if anything changes, if the you know, those reactions become less severe, the plan is adjusted. But plant uh, particular things are in place. Student may have soy milk uh, specifically in the cafeteria for their for them to consume during lunch or breakfast or whatever. They would know that at a certain time, the student maybe have to come to the nurse and have blood sugar checked. So it, it's generally a little bit more complicated when you have a 504 pan and more things that are laid out. Generally with an allergy, it's more of an uh, individualized health plan versus a 504 plan, unless there's more of a severe anaphylactic reaction. So are all of these plans available for all types of schools or are they just, you know, for federal, federally funded public schools? Do you know if there's a difference? I work for a public charter school, but I do know as a school nurse who's gone to meetings across the state and we have some nurses that are also on the National Nurses Association, School Nurse Board. Those accommodations are for any school, most schools, parochial, Catholic, um, public, or charter. I'll have some type of individualized health plan, whether or not they have a school nurse in that building. Most of the schools that with school nurses definitely have those plans, but even if there's no school nurse present, there is something, a plan in place because it's a, a federally mandated for students with disabilities. I believe that's the uh, 504 Act of uh, 1973. So that covers pretty much uh, all educational facilities, including uh, early childhood centers, head starts, daycare centers, those types of things. So you were mentioning the the act of 1973. And I was just wondering, can you just talk about why um, food allergy could be considered as a disability? Anything that affects your ability to uh, respond to things as other children would respond. Say if you have asthma, you're unable to play um, for certain periods of time, you may need an inhaler before or after gym to keep you from having an asthma attack. If you're a diabetic, you may have to have a certain diet um, in order to keep your blood sugar from going to a dangerous level. But with a, a food allergy, it's similar. If you're exposed to an allergen, it could send you into a life-threatening uh, reaction. So it's not necessarily considered a disability, but it's something that... Um, we should be aware of and we should try to protect that child and keep them safe as we would with any other child with any other medical condition. So what the 504 Act of 1973 does is just make it safe and easier for a child to, to go to school and be able to be among their peers rather than have to be separated because they may have something that will cause them difficulty. I think you mentioned it was, was it your niece who... Um, my has granddaughter. the allergies? Your granddaughter? Uh -huh. Yeah. So can you, um, sorry, that's my cat. He's that's yelling. Okay. 
I guess it was really helpful for you to kind of know these steps in order to help set that up for her. In the most simple terms, what steps do parents need to take in order to get whatever plan they choose set into place? Who do they talk to at the school? They talk to the school nurse. Okay. So they don't go to the, like the principal? Not if there's a school nurse in place in the school. Usually if there is a school nurse in place or a health service office in place, the principal or the assistant principal or counselor will refer that parent to the school nurse. If there is not uh, a school nurse in that building, they may have what they call a health room assistant or someone the, uh, in that building that would be able to accommodate any child with health care needs. So that's the person that they would refer uh, that parent to. But certainly the parent can bring that information to the principal, to the counselor, the social worker, whoever is in that building that they're able to, to access. And that person will make sure that they get to the right per- people make sure that their child is safe in school. Do you recommend also talking to, particularly, you know, the the elementary school age, talking to the individual teachers as well, since they are the person that is with the student all day? Yes, I do. I recommend that. I I believe that. I know in our district we have um, nurses do what we call a a staff in-service on the use of an EpiPen, certain food allergies, certain asthma and other reactions that can occur so that they're not caught unawares that they know a certain number of children. I think one in 13 children have some sort of food allergy. So it's good for the staff to know that, you know, this could, this is possible. You may be someone in your classroom that may have this. And if it occurs, this is what you need to do. And if a parent reaches out to you for whatever reason, they weren't able to get a hold of the nurse or they might just think, I'm just going to tell the teacher that, you know, Johnny's allergic to peanuts. So she'll know, you know, make sure you reach out to the nurse and make sure you let the parent know they have to get in touch and bring something to school to keep that child safe. Both Cheryl and Meg are currently at the elementary school level where students just have one teacher. But what do things look like as the child ages and starts to change classrooms and do after-school activities on their own? Let's hear Meg's plans. You know, that's an interesting one. And that's where you do the best you can with the uh, divisional head, whatever that looks like, the nurse. Um, A lot of times they'll have a homeroom teacher of sorts that is kind of their home base, even if they see five other teachers. But then again, when they're bouncing between people and social events and things, As they get older, that self-advocacy and that arming them with the tools to be able to properly communicate, that's when that becomes the most important, I think. That's really what school is when it it comes down to it. It's just preparing us for future life. So this is like really good experience, especially as she grows older, to be able to speak up and kind of manage that all on her own because that's that's how it's going to be for her forever until we get that magic cure. (laughs) You're right. And then as they get older, one of the, the challenges we've been experiencing lately is the self-carry. So when she's out of our house and she's not with us a lot, it becomes challenging when they're older and you don't have a diaper bag where you just throw it in there and now they're out there on their own. So um, our big challenge in our house has been finding her a little purse that's age appropriate, but that is something that she likes and she will wear. And I know a lot of boy moms that have struggled with that as well. Like what's the best um, vehicle for them to keep them with them and feel confident about it. And so they're always, you know, 
as with anything in life, there are growing pains and new stages. And so in my house, that's one we're dealing with is, you know, finding that age appropriate purse or vehicle that she feels confident about, but that I know will keep her medicine with her and safe. Yeah, that's one of the most annoying things. I remember the day my mom told me I had to carry my own epinephrine and I was like, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but and they're just so big and generally you try to carry two of them and you're like, what do I do with this? Like a lot of times you don't want to have to carry a bag, but you do because, right? you know, and especially because it needs to be a certain temperature. So it needs to be protected somewhat. So, right. Yeah. So yeah. like for my daughter, it's having the Velcro bag that's temperature sensitive that she can put her epinephrine in. Then she also has antihistamines and an inhaler. And then, you know, little girls keep trinkets and chapstick and our wallet and whatever. Yeah. So it ends up being like a full-size little backpacker purse. It's a lot of stuff to carry around. It is. I'm just envisioning her with one of those, uh, the fanny packs that they wear across their chest now. Like they're so fashionable. Yeah, like if that exactly. was fashionable back when I was growing up, that'd be a breeze. Cause that's the perfect EpiPen size, but here we are. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's like the one place I do, I do bend with her is like, I would put less effort and time into finding her a purse that she really likes in fourth grade. But I'm like, if that makes you feel confident and that will make you carry them. And I know that you'll have them with you. Great. <laughs> Meg, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule with Allergy Amulet to come, you know, talk to us about all this stuff that we need to know as food allergy people ourselves or as people who care for and love others with food allergies. So thank you. Yeah, I love talking with you and, and the work you guys are doing at FEI is incredible. So thank you for your time. And I want to say a huge thank you to Cheryl Simmons for sharing her time and expertise. For more information, please visit foodequalityinitiative.org slash podcast. I'm Sophia Gillespie. Thank you for listening.